Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. Welcome to today's episode of NLP Highlights. My name is Alexis Ross, and I'll be co-hosting today's episode along with Nishant Subramani. Hi, Nishant. Hi, Alexis. Today, we'll be talking about what happens after PhD applications are submitted. So everything from how to approach interviews to how to decide between programs. We have three guests joining us to share their perspectives. Our faculty guest is Radha Mihalcha, a professor at the University of Michigan. Welcome, Radha. Hi, Alexis and Nishant. Glad to be here. We also have two PhD students joining us, Aishwarya Kamath, a third-year PhD student at NYU, and Sanjay Subramanian, a first-year PhD student at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Aishwarya. Hi. Nice to be here. And welcome, Sanjay. Hi. Thanks for having me. So uh, our goal here is to kind of get a better understanding of the overview of the interview process and how the conversations with faculty and things like that go. So the first questions are, are to you, Radha. Um, what does the timeline look like for PhD applications? When do interviews start? These sorts of things at, in, in your lab and in Michigan NLP in general. So the part that I'm sure people already know because it's a matter of the past is the deadline for applications and that differs for different schools. So it's usually around December. And after that, the different schools go in sort of different ways with the goal of reaching decisions, at least in US by March 15, sooner usually, but by March 15, everyone should hear back so that they can make decisions by April 15. So that will be sort of the end of the timeline. And in between the deadline for applications, sometime around December and March 15, um, there are the evaluations that happen, which again is different process for different schools. At Michigan, we aim to look at every single application, have multiple eyes to look at the applications. And based on that, and based on a number of factors, which we can discuss in more detail um, if there is interest, there will be some applications that are being shortlisted. Um, and from then on, there are interviews that happen, um, again, at different paces. Uh, usually it's around this time, so it's January, February that interviews happen. can be sometimes with just one faculty, it can be with multiple faculty. Depending, again, on different places, it could also be with peers. And from there, it would be a recommendation that happens. And again, I know more specifically the process at Michigan and previously at the University of North Texas. After that recommendation, the application will go to the committee that handles graduate admissions. And there is where there will be other pairs of eyes looking at the applications and eventually confirming that admission or not, depending on whether there are certain requirements would fit. And in general, if there is a recommendation from a faculty that they would be interested in working with the student, and again, I'm trying not to make it too Michigan specific. Sometimes it's also tied to funding, whether there will be, there is one faculty willing to work with the student in year one. In other places, year one students will be sort of roaming around to find a better match. And so after that point, once the students are admitted to the program, they will receive that, that letter, uh, which usually comes from the department with the offer letter. And again, different places would have different offers, of course, in terms of um, what 
they are admitted to it will be like PhD program for five years with guaranteed funding or maybe a fellowship for the first year. So different places would have different admission processes there and admission letters. Um, so that's a overview and I'm happy to delve deeper into different parts depending on interest. Awesome. Thank you. That was super, super, super comprehensive. And uh, so one sort of specific question. So you mentioned that the applications at a certain stage go to the go to the committees for a sort of final decision. When do people start hearing back about those decisions? And is there a difference in timeline between those who are sort of accepted, rejected, waitlisted, etc.? So applicants will start hearing soon after it goes to that committee. Of course, they don't know when it gets there. One, one point that I think it's important to consider, at least to my mind, earlier applications are not more worthy or more like higher quality. It really depends on a number of, of factors, including, I don't know, the time that faculty have, which of course have, I don't know, classes also start around January. Faculty search is also happening around that time. So there is a lot happening. So for instance, in Michigan, we are still looking at applications. I mean, we've done our first rounds and we've looked at all applications, but we haven't finalized all admissions. So it's the fact that one gets an admission sooner or later, it's not, it shouldn't be interpreted in any ways. It's not an indication of, of that. And it doesn't mean that if they haven't gotten something in January, it means a reject will come. So it shouldn't be read through in, in any different ways. Usually when there is something explicit, usually at this time would be primarily the admissions. And some schools may have waiting lists, um, so maybe they would hear about that too. But rejects, I think they will not come until past mid-March. Okay, that, that makes sense. So there's a slightly different timeline. Uh, people start hearing back decisions earlier, but it could hear back earlier, but it's not it's not the case that if you haven't heard back by like the middle of January or like the end of January, it's not the case that sort of you're, you're definitely not accepted, right? These two things, as you, as you mentioned, the committee gets a pile at a certain point and it's that, that point is dependent on a lot of factors. That's, that's great to know as a prospective applicant next year. <laughs> it's uh, good to know. Yeah, definitely. And then it also depends on the <laughs> field, like in AI, for instance, which I hope people will not take in any ways other than what it is. Um, there is, of course, a lot of interest in the field, which really means a lot of applicants. Right? So if we want to really do due diligence and look carefully at all applications, there is a lot of them. And so it does take time rather than rushing through them and having something out by mid-January. We did that first round, like we said, but it's still taking time to carefully look again, have other people look at them, take like do the interviews and so forth. Great. So let's change gears slightly. So let's say the the committee has come back and this prospective applicant has gotten an acceptance and they're really happy about this. There are visit days for a lot of a lot of different schools. So from your perspective, from from Michigan and the University of North Texas, when do those visit days happen? And then what does that kind of look like? So here I would speak primarily for Michigan. And I guess the other data point that I can offer is that not every school has that. And again, it shouldn't be interpreted in any ways. It's still me who was previously at the University of North Texas, so sort of the, the same faculty as here. 
and we are just not doing visit days there. So it doesn't mean that the program would offer less or there will be less interest in the students. So different schools may have different ways of going about it. So at Michigan, this year will be the first time they will do two visit days, well, two, like four really, but two rounds of visit days to offer both virtually and in person. In the past, we primarily had in person, which also limited the reach of those visit days. It was mainly for students who were residing in the U.S. And during visit days, we try to give a flavor of what it would mean to be a student at the university. So that means meeting with peers or meeting with groups of students, meeting with peers also in the lab. So the faculty who will potentially work with the students, they will get to have even closer connections um, and meetings with the students in that lab. Maybe meeting with faculty in a related areas. So say if it's a student in AI, they will likely attend any events that we organize in the AI lab. So more faculty from the AI space getting a sense of the campus, organized tours of the campus, um, the city, having an opportunity to ask questions about even like logistical things, like what does the first year look like? How about the second year? Are there any exams? What courses you have to take? And, and then we also have uh, meetings usually with student-driven groups. Like there is the ensemble of computer science ladies excel. So it'd be like women in computer science and um, some candidates would meet with them and um, like students were joining. Um, so it depends on different students would sort of get and pick and choose um, from what would be of interest to them. So at the end of the visit days, they would have a better sense of what it would mean for them to be a student in Michigan, for instance, or the other places. I can talk a bit about my experience with visit days. I would say it also is a really nice opportunity to get to know the lab culture and the students and how happy they are. And I think this like will tie together with some questions like we'll probably discuss later about like what we want to know about the lab that we want to potentially join. So I think like my visit days were at UMass, Amherst and NYU. NYU has a slightly different strategy for different departments. So that's, I guess, also worth knowing like computer science, I know usually invites students over after they've already got their admits, whereas Center for Data Science, which is where I'm doing my PhD, it's more of an interview process. So it's like a combined visit day plus interview where I think the structure was really nice because we were invited to like come see the lab and they sent us a list of all the faculty and it was our choice who we get to meet with mostly. Basically, there were slots and we got to pick who we want to talk to. I suppose there was some amount of like matching as well on their end because, you know, they mentioned that we might not get all the choices that we opt for. But I think I got all of mine and it was a really nice experience to like get to talk to all the professors and discuss like what potentially you could work on with them. And even though it was supposedly an interview, it felt more like a really nice conversation with these amazing researchers and like a nice opportunity, even if you don't end up going to the school because you want to make connections at this phase in your life. At UMass, we and also NYU, I guess, after the main meeting, the professors and the formal stuff, there was also a bit of like socializing, which is also really nice for visit days because you get to know the students. And at UMass, we went bowling and like NYU, they showed us around near Washington Square Park and stuff like that. So 
I would say all of this also is really nice about visitors and you should like do as many as you can. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, this is great information. And I think we'll we'll come back to talk about visit days more in depth at the end of this conversation. But first, I want to talk a bit more about interviews. Um, Sanjay, I know you recently went through that this process. You applied last year. Can you talk a bit about were your interviews also more casual conversations talking about research? Or did you also have, were there some technical interviews thrown in there? Can you talk briefly about what these conversations looked like? Absolutely. I think the most common questions that I got were something like, describe two or three of your research projects, and then the professor would ask various follow-up questions about the project. Or another question that I got was, I think I got a couple times, was about why I want to go to grad school. Maybe that might be more common for people who have taken some time in between, taken left school for some time and worked or something like that. And then uh, I don't think I've really gotten like a very technical question, like maybe some kind of high level questions about what is important in the field or something like that. But I think I have heard though of technical questions being asked by small number of faculty maybe, but uh, but I personally didn't get any questions like that. Yeah, just gonna jump in to say a few words about the interviewing process, which in the UK, which was a, quite a bit different from the US. So I also interviewed at UCL and it was, I would say, like a much more like technical one hour conversation asking me a lot of questions about math and like probability, statistics, linear algebra, which was very different from anything else which I had done in the US. So like uh, Sanjay said, it was very yeah high level discussions about my research in the past and also what I want to be doing, why I want to be doing it. And like he said, I had also taken a year away from research and like I was in industry for a year. So it was also a question like, are you sure you want to do this? Why do you want to do this? And what do you think PhD will add to your like career and stuff like that? Yeah. So it sounds like there are kind of a range of different interview types, but they at least all talk about research and high level. It seems like it's helpful to think about why you want to, why you are applying. Are there tips having gone through this process? Are there tips that you would give beyond just preparing answers to these common questions, Aishwarya or Sanjay? I guess make sure if you have papers before your PhD that you are clear on what the research goals were. And like they are going to basically look at the papers you've written if you have some. And if not, like it's going to be like projects you've done and ask you possibly very pointed questions about them to kind of figure out how clear you are on like the concepts that you have you wrote a paper on. So yeah, I would say like brush up on the stuff that you've done and should be fine. Yeah, I echo the thing about knowing your research inside and out. Maybe one other thing that you can do is to be familiar with the faculty member who's interviewing you, be familiar with their work, and not only to anticipate questions that they may ask, but maybe there'll be some connection between your work and something that they've done. And so this might be something that you can bring up during the interview. I'm curious, Radha, from your perspective as a faculty member, are, are there any tips you would add in addition? Like what, what, are th- what are the kinds of things that faculty are assessing in these interviews? Well, I mean, it was mentioned like research, but in a way I feel like kind of know the research that students do from their applications. So I tend not to spend a ton of time on that, although they would come to do research. But I really, it's a limited period of time when I'm trying to do a lot of reading between the lines, because I care, for instance, about how much the student care about the impact of their work. 
So it's the work is one thing, but whether they care, where is that being used, whether there is any societal impact. So that's one thing that, again, even sometimes without asking directly, I uh, paying attention to here, if that's something that, that um, they care about. I also care about sort of the attitudes toward research, like having, for instance, a positive attitude toward problem solving. It's something that makes a difference. And again, I cannot really ask, like, do you have a positive attitude? They say yes. And so it's again a reading between the lines, like how do they address problem solving? Because doing research can end up sometimes being quite frustrating, right? So you fail 10 times and here you go the 11th time. So having that positive attitude really helps. And yeah, I think generally, in a way, I think it's assessing how well they would do also in, in the lab that I have with respect to the sort of the culture that we've been trying to cultivate in the lab. And so it's not as much as technical stuff, which again, I feel I can do my homework, read their papers if they have any. I don't necessarily care about people having papers by the time they apply or read carefully their application. It's more about the other things. So I would sometimes ask about situations when they ran into a challenge and how they went about that. Sometimes ask about hobbies they have. So trying to assess sort of the person as a whole, as opposed to the particular research niche, which again, it does matter, but I can get that also from, from elsewhere. That's yeah, that's, that's super helpful. So it sounds like the interviews complementing the written application and that can look like many different things. And I think to people's point, I mean, different people have different experiences, like even just here among the three of us. So ultimately to me, it's really just being candid. I mean, you can prepare obviously, but it will be a short period of time when really just being you, because again, one could fake it and try to be, I don't know, someone else, but eventually then you have to fake it for five years. And I'm just exaggerating to make my point. Nobody's faking it. So it's really being you, being candid with what you say. And if it ends up being a good fit, that's great. If it doesn't, then sort of so be it. Maybe it's better that way. And then the other thing, I think it's also, it's actually going both ways. And I'll stop there. Interview, it's regarded like, oh, this faculty reached out to me, they are interviewing me, but it's really also your opportunity to interview them. So, I mean, maybe the way it's conducted is that the questions are being asked by the faculty, but it's fine to ask questions back. Usually there is time left for questions that you would ask. So trying to also figure out whether you would want to go in and work with them. So it's also reverse. Yeah, I think you raise a really important point about the interview being a chance to figure out advisor, what the advisor is like, what the culture at a school is like. And this is a great segue into a next set of questions, which is about how, what, what are the right questions to be asking in those interviews? So maybe Sanjay, as someone who recently made a decision about PhD programs, can you talk about like, what were the general things that you were considering that you think are relevant to making an informed decision and how you approach that process? Yeah, sure. I think there's so many different factors. So I'll try to say a few, and I'm sure others will also have some other things to add. Maybe the one of the main things is like this hands-on versus hands-off advisor dichotomy that I think a lot of people talk about. And um, that was kind of a lot of the stuff that I read or that I was being told by senior students and such. So hands-on advisor would be someone who spends a lot more time with you and who is familiar, more familiar maybe with the low level details of your research and the maybe more of the day-to-day -day work. Whereas a hands-off advisor might spend less time with you and uh, 
kind of give you high level guidance about directions that might be more fruitful. And yeah, so this is kind of a basic maybe dike, uh, and it's not really a dichotomy. It's more like a spectrum, right? Like some people could be in the in the middle somehow. But yeah, this is like definitely something to keep in mind and ask. Try to ask questions. Maybe like somewhat of the of the advisor, but I I I think actually a lot more of this comes from like a lot more of determining where an advisor is on the spectrum comes from talking to the students, knowing how much time they get with their advisor and what kinds of feedback they get. So this is one big thing. Let me just, I've written some notes here. So let me just see if there's anything else worth mentioning. Yeah, again, like when you talk to the students of the faculty, I think definitely get a sense of how they feel overall being at the school, being in the group, maybe ask them about tough times that they've had that they're willing to share and how faculty or others at the in the group have have helped them. And then finally, like definitely also, I think it's worth considering non-work factors like location or people that you know in the area, which is important for for thing for your life outside of work. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to hear Aishwarya as so you spent some time in your PhD. Are there things that you've that you've learned through the experience of actually being in the program that you're like, oh, I, I wish I knew that, or other students should also think about these things when they're making a decision. Yeah, I think a large part of your PhD is finding like a support network for people to work with and to bounce ideas off of because I feel like the worst thing that can happen is like you're alone in your office and just trying to figure it out yourself. And so I think like another thing to look out for is to see how collaborative the environment is in the in the lab. If they meet often and like not just meet for work, but also spend time outside of work, you know that, you know, they enjoy spending time with each other, working with each other. And I think that's really nice to have. And some labs do this really well and others not so much. And I feel like that makes a huge difference in how happy you will be at the lab. So that's also something to look at. Yeah, I think NYU is really good on in that respect. Cool. Um, in terms of advising styles, how do you do you have how, how do you decide what your advising style is? And maybe Radha, like you can speak from a faculty perspective about do you know, like working with different students, how do you determine what is going to work well for a particular student? Then maybe a student can translate that in their own reflection. Well, one thing that at least I learned over many years of advising that there are not no two students the same. So it's very different. And I'm trying to adjust generally to student style within certain limits. So even if, say, a student would like to meet three hours a week, I just cannot do that. And if a student would like to never see me again, would not <laughs> work very well <laughs> like what the other. And so it's, but in between, so there are students who need a little bit more handholding, maybe at first, maybe throughout the PhD. There are students, if you attempt to do a little bit of handholding, then they're like, react, like, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. So that's <laughs> adjusting to those, which is really, I think it's just natural. I mean, different people have different personalities, different working styles, different learning styles. And so there is always that learning each other's style that happens usually during the first year. I mean, at first I can always describe, and that is a fairly common question, like what is your advising style? And then I can talk concretely about how often I meet individually with my students, how often we meet as a group, what are other things happening in my group or in the department. But then eventually I always encourage them. And that usually comes after the offer. So it's visit days or before I always suggest that they meet with peers, like talking to either my students or other students in the department, because 
I even think, I mean, I can say, I can talk sort of all day long about my advising style, but eventually it will still be more candid coming from a, from a student. And so usually then I, to that, I will give more brief answer. I can answer concretely again for how long I meet and how I go about selecting projects. That's another thing which I can answer concretely. But in terms of like, oh, what's Rada's availability or how does she do this and that? I think it will be best coming from a, from a peer. What are some other questions in addition to asking about advisors' availability and how collaborative a lab is that you think would be good to talk to students about at visit days? Sanjay, what do, you, do you have an answer based on your visit days last year? Definitely, yeah. I guess one basic question is trying to get a feel, if you have multiple faculty that you're interested in, trying to get a feel for who is willing to advise you. This is like the first thing that that you might, at least in, in schools where people tend to have temporary advisors assigned when you already come to the school rather than like a rotation system. So yeah, this is one thing to get to know. Another thing I think is like, maybe you have like certain career interests longer term maybe you can think about which advisors might be able to help you in this capacity somehow. The The example that comes to mind, like the, the example that's most prominent in my mind is like, if you want to start a company, for example, in that case, like it, it could be very helpful if you have an advisor who has experience advising startups or starting a company, something like that. There's other way, there's, you know, aside from startups, there's probably other career trajectories for which this would be helpful too, but this is just what came to mind for me. Yeah, that, that's great. Ashwarya, do you have any other questions that come to mind? I think not exactly a question, but something worth thinking about is also like how many other, so if you're like focused on one advisor versus like open to working with somebody else from the department, because people's like life happens and maybe the one person you wanted to work with, something happens and they move away or whatever, you still want to finish your PhD and it's nice to have other advisors you can work with and who can help you still finish your PhD in a nice way. So yeah, I think it's this was advice that was given to me by somebody whose advisor like abruptly just went to industry and didn't do anything about their students. So they were like, hey, this is like the time in ML where it's extremely lucrative for a lot of people to switch to like industry. So watch out for that and make sure you go to a place where there's multiple people who you would be happy to work with. So maybe that's yeah, worth keeping in mind. Awesome. I also had a question about, I think you mentioned the support systems being important throughout a PhD. And it sounds like a really strong source of that can be the peers in your lab. But I'm wondering, are there other kinds of support systems that are that some schools have maybe over others that you think would be good to look into before committing to a school? I mean, if you mean like uh, mental health support, I'm sure like most schools right now have that. NYU does as well. And it's like super very available to all students and they encourage grad students to like use these services. Having people close by who you know in the same location, I think it makes a huge difference as well because it's nice to also talk to people outside of your work circle and being able to like get away from research for a while and just like talk to friends who have other things. They're working in other uh, fields and you don't have to think about machine learning for a while it's refreshing every once in a while so like I guess having the opportunity to like have hobbies in the city that or like town that you're in I think is also important like maybe you like playing badminton and it's kind of dead on the east coast so maybe that's worth thinking about if you're <laughs> choosing between things whereas I know in California or Seattle you know there's a lot of 
badminton club so that yeah maybe maybe it's worth thinking for somebody who's very serious about it i don't know i'm just like making this up but i'm just saying like it's nice to have uh, keep in mind things that outside of school that you would that would help you keep sane during the phd because of course it's not a short period of time and you enjoying it also makes it uh, more successful that makes sense i think one follow up question i have is is there something that you didn't consider or didn't consider strongly when you applied and made a decision but now thinking back on it something you wish you considered more or considered way less like you overvalued that thing at, at the beginning when you made a decision can't think of something like that right now yeah not <laughs> off the top of my head sorry <laughs> you made informed decisions but i think i mean obviously i wasn't in that position just hearing from other students is related to various points like finding those groups that are like-minded which is not necessarily research like-minded like if you enjoy skating or badminton or whatnot, I mean, it could be formally through clubs or otherwise. So I think to me, from what I hear from students, it can make a big difference. And so learning more about those, we actually don't really do much from what I know during visit days about that. We do have like social time and tours of the campus and city, but it's not really like, oh, this is the list of activities that people can do here or more on the social side. Yeah, and it also matters if you're like a city person, whereas, or like like small towns. I know like some of my friends who like really like the calm and peace in like a small university town, and others who would be like, oh no, I can't live here. I would be really sad, and I need a city. So like, it really depends on who you are as a person, and taking that into account, I think, is important when making your decision because it's like five years. So yeah. Another question I had, which is on this sort of deciding between programs thread a lot of so labs are super different from from an outsider's perspective some are huge with like double digit phd students for a single advisor some are much much smaller and i'm sure there were there were opportunities for for both of you to sort of choose between one or one or the other what are sort of the pros and cons of of each type of lab setting whether big or small and how, how do you navigate sort of deciding between either applying to those or deciding between them? Um, Aishraya, do you want to? Sure. So I think like when the lab is really big, it also tends to have some sort of hierarchy by default, like more postdocs, more senior PhD students working more with like junior PhD students and you get like more support maybe, like research uh, supervision. Whereas if it's like a smaller lab, like, and it's a, relatively a junior professor, I guess you still get a lot of time. Whereas if it's a senior professor and the lab is still small, then it's likely you're going to have to like do a lot of the work yourself or like you're not going to see them as often. So I think, yeah, this is definitely worth considering and probably worth talking to their existing students, whether it's two students or like 15, it's definitely going to make a difference in how your PhD goes and you should uh, have that conversation when on your visit day. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes sense to me too. I think uh, even if there's not like a strict hire, like an official hierarchy, there will probably be like a lot of projects where you have some combination of senior students and junior students. So um, yeah, like during visit days or otherwise, definitely try to talk to some of the senior students and see if you have similar interests to them. If they seem like they're pleasant to work with, all of these things are important. That makes sense. I think. But for me personally, the larger labs seem, in because of the hierarchy, a little bit intimidating. Just There's so many people. 
but also it seems like it would be easier to build to build collaborations just because there's more people naturally right that you're sitting next to or or, or sort of being in the same you know meetings and uh, and other things a person who likes having a lot of collaborations because there are people who are happy working in small groups just with their advisor and publishing papers and if that works then yeah that that's fine too but i think like in general as a first year phd student when you're trying to figure out what your interests are and like exploring it's nice to have the opportunity to be like be a part of many projects that you not not necessarily like end up like actually being part of the entire thing but like at least get exposure to a bunch of different projects just by virtue of like having many other students and actually to your point nishant i just going to say something that again i wasn't asked but from what i see that i see it's useful for students and might be questions worth asking is about whether the lab is facilitating interdisciplinary collaborations to the extent that you care about that, because not every lab does that. So it might be a question that you could ask to the advisor, also to the students, like to what extent that is something that the lab is doing. The other thing, which I've been doing more and more recently, is to provide mentorship opportunities to PhD students, because I've seen that it's actually beneficial to both the mentors and the mentees. I think usually it's seen that is the useful to the mentees because they get exposed to research. But to me, it's the mentors themselves benefit a lot. So that might be another thing to find out whether there are such opportunities. I wanted to add one thing again about Nishan's question comparing large groups and smaller groups. Just that uh, when when we think of a large group or when we think of a small group, we have cer- certain like preconceived notions or something like that. I think I did also at some point, but I, I definitely like encourage everyone to just talk to like the people in the group to get to know what the group is like. Because for example, maybe there's like the, maybe I had a preconceived notion that like faculty in larger groups tend to have less of an idea of what their students work on or like less involvement in, in each student's uh, work on average. But I definitely think this is not true across the board. I think there are absolutely faculty who have large groups, but still manage to somehow play a big role, like spend time with their students and play a big role. So yeah, the the thing that I want to say is just try not to have many preconceived notions and just like talk to give give all the groups a fair chance and like talk to everyone and figure out like what the thing is, you know, what life is really like. That's a great point. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for all the insight on on that front i think that's that's something that's less sort of immediately visible to prospective applicants um just because it's names on a sheet or uh papers on a google scholar page or something like this right that's kind of all the uh context that we as applicants for the most part have um so it's easy to kind of jump to jump to those standard conclusions which may or may not reflect the reality in any reasonable way. So those were all the questions I had. Alexis, are there any other? Yeah. I guess, is there anything that you think we didn't touch on that you think prospective candidates or applicants should know going, like finishing out this process this year, but also in the future? Well, I would say just a couple of things. One is that getting a PhD is not sort of the ultimate and only goal that one has in life. So even if it happens that you one is not accepted to any PhD program. It's, I mean, I, I can see how it can be 
saddening, frustrating, upsetting, all that. But again, eventually it's not the end of the world. Life keeps going on besides that. And I know I have even in my lab students who eventually applied the second time and are successfully doing their PhD because they chose to continue applying or you can. So that's one thing. And then for those who end up having multiple choices, one thing that I learned a while back and I've been actually relying in my own decision-making is that we humans have this property of justifying our own decisions. So once we make a decision, when we look back and say, oh, this was the best, and we find all the reasons why it was best. So although looking forward, it might seem hard, like, oh, I have to make this big decision between these places. Eventually, whatever you decide, I'm pretty sure I'm willing to bet that you'll be happy with your choice. So just keeping that in mind maybe will make the process easier. (laughs) I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, everyone, for all of the perspectives and advice you shared. I think uh, this is going to be very helpful for people. Thanks for hosting this.